America's longest war, not over yet. The lead starts right now. Breaking news in Afghanistan, the Taliban sees more cities. The U.S. is sending thousands of troops evacuating staff and telling any U.S. citizen to get out immediately. We're live in Kabul. Then it's happening again. Hospitals running out of beds. And now some people may soon get a booster shot. Are you included? Plus, how a little-known congressman was privately helping former President Trump in the efforts to overturn the election. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown, in for Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news. Afghanistan on the brink of collapse, and moments ago, the Pentagon announcing 3,000 U.S. troops are headed back there. This movement I would have consists started- of three infantry battalions that are currently in the Central Command Area of Responsibility. They will move to Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul within the next 24 to 48 hours. Those three infantry battalions will comprise approximately 3,000 personnel. Their mission to get Americans out now. A senior White House official telling me President Biden gave the order this morning after being briefed by his national security advisor and the secretary of defense. And here's why. The walls are closing in on Afghanistan's capital, Kabul, seen here on this map, surrounded by the Taliban in red. The same official telling me, quote, we knew this was possible, but not the situation we had hoped would be the case. We are covering this from the ground in Afghanistan, as well as the State Department and the White House. Let's start with CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, live in Kabul. Clarissa, U.S. Marines, soldiers are just hours away from landing back in Afghanistan. How dire is the situation on the ground there? Well, there's certainly a growing reality uh, that this is not going to be possible in terms of trying to reverse the gains that have been made by the Taliban. Afghan forces clearly are not able to stem the tide. We are seeing major cities falling to the Taliban, falling like dominoes, Pamela. Today, Herat, Afghanistan's third largest city, also imminently expected to fall, is Kandahar, the second largest city, the spiritual heartland of the Taliban, the birthplace of the movement, the former capital of their Islamic emirate. If Kandahar falls, this has huge implications. I've spoken to a member of parliament, a lawmaker on the ground there. He says it hasn't fallen yet, but it will. We were there less than a week ago. And we were at their frontline position with Afghan commandos. That frontline position is now completely under the control of the Taliban. Pamela. And Kylie, I want to bring you in because you have new reporting about the mad scramble inside the Biden administration, including possibly moving the embassy. Yeah, that's right. There are a number of contingency conversations happening right now. One of those is the possibility of relocating the U.S. embassy in Kabul to the airport in Kabul. That is a place where these uh, U.S. troops are going to be going to support these U.S. diplomats that are going to be leaving the country. Now, the State Department is pressing that this is not an evacuation, uh, not a full withdrawal, not a U.S. abandonment of Afghanistan. I asked what the message is, however, to the Afghans on the ground when the U.S. is not only withdrawing their troops, but now also starting to withdraw their diplomats. The State Department spokesperson said it is a message of enduring partnership. But frankly, that is hard to see, given the fact that these diplomats are going to be leaving the country. It appears that there are moves to potentially stage more diplomats to leave the country. And President Biden has continually said that even when U.S. troops withdraw, 
America is not going to withdraw from Afghanistan. But it appears today that there are the wheels in motion. Should that be a possibility? Should the Taliban gains uh, grow so close to Kabul that the U.S. needs to pull all of their personnel out of the country? Clearly leaving the door open for that possibility. Uh, Jeff, we're learning more about President Biden's role in sending troops back to Afghanistan. Pamela, we are. And President Biden did not answer questions about this decision today. But as you mentioned earlier, we are learning now from White House officials that President Biden signed off on this order earlier today to send troops back to Afghanistan, some 3,000 or so. And this came after a meeting last evening, I am told, uh, with his uh, top national security advisors. And then he was briefed again this morning by Defense Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin, as well as uh, his top national security advisor, Jake Sullivan. And it was at that point, we are told, that President Biden gave this order to the Pentagon to uh, send more troops back. But uh, beyond that, the White House is not of officially releasing a formal statement on this decision. But they, behind the scenes, Pamela, are working to make clear the president is deeply engaged in this. But we should point out his view overall of this Afghanistan policy has not changed. I'm told he does believe this is in line with uh, what his overall strategy is. And he said just two days ago here at the White House, he does not regret his decision to pull U.S. troops out. So the White House does not see this as a contradiction. By ordering to send more troops, they say it's not uh, you know, differing from his policy. But that, of course, is the open question here. What happens next here going forward? So the president choosing not to address this directly today with reporters. But we do know he was deeply involved in a meeting last night, as well as signing off on that order earlier today, Pamela. Right. And the source I spoke with earlier, administration officials said that, look, they knew this was possible. The Taliban right. was strongly positioned when President Biden made this announcement. But this was certainly not the scenario they wanted to see play out. How quickly the Taliban has been able to gain control. And Clarissa, you have been talking with Afghans desperately looking to get out. What are they telling you? Well, whatever the semantics might be in terms of how the State Department is presenting this, saying that it's just out of an abundance of caution, it's not a evacuation, it's a withdrawal, the way it's being seen on the ground, as Kylie pointed out, is as, as an evacuation. It's being seen as a pivotal moment. It's turning the tide here from a sense of dread to a sense of panic. How do we get out? When can we get out? When is the Taliban going to surround this city? What will happen to our families? What are our options? Where can we take safe harbor. And the reality is people aren't getting a lot of feedback or messages, particularly from the Afghan government, as to what they should do and where they should go. Particularly of concern are the thousands of people who have worked either with the U.S. military over the last 20 years, with NATO forces over the last 20 years, the U.S. embassy. Uh, you know, we've heard that over a thousand of them have been able to get out of the country into the U.S., but there are many, many more who are mired deep in paperwork, who are growing panicked by the moment. Uh, we've been in touch with one young man uh, who talked about potentially trying to set himself on fire outside the U.S. embassy as a form of protest. Now, I'm not sure he's going to do that. I certainly hope he is not. But I do think that speaks to the situation here in terms of just how alarmed and panicked people are becoming. Absolutely. And you noted some Afghans have been uh, evacuated, but there are still 15,000 SIV applicants in Afghanistan waiting to be evacuated. And you have spoken to some people in Kandahar. You were just there last week. Did they expect this to happen so fast? 
No, they didn't. When I interviewed this lawmaker last week, Pamela, what was extraordinary is he was saying to us, you should look out tonight. We're launching a big counteroffensive. Afghan forces are going to take back some of the territory that the Taliban had. And when we were there at that frontline position with those soldiers looking out at a Taliban flag, which was not that far away, by the way, those soldiers felt pretty confident that they had the situation under control. Well, I sent those soldiers a message earlier today. I said, are you okay? Because obviously that position has now been completely run uh, overrun by the Taliban. And they said simply, we left. We left. And this really speaks to the core issue here, Pamela, is that many Afghan forces now confronted with the growing momentum that the Taliban has on its side are simply choosing to surrender or to desert. They do not want to die. They're not willing to do it. And that means that the Afghan government has very little opportunity to try to turn this thing around. So Afghan forces have a lot more manpower than the Taliban. The U.S. keeps saying that we have given them Uh, so many resources. How is the Taliban able to dominate so quickly? Does this just come down to a matter of will, Clarissa? No, there are some other factors at play here. Resupply is a big one, okay? The idea was to have these Afghan bases all over the entire country. This is a vast country. And what happens is that when the, well, even from the get-go, resupply was an issue. But now with the military under such strong pressure, uh, it becomes even more of a central issue. We actually recently were talking to some Taliban fighters in Ghazni province who told us that they were able to take over an Afghan base because the Afghan soldiers inside the base ran out of food because it was no longer possible for them to get resupplies. Another thing that I would say is a really key issue is morale within the Afghan forces. They don't have the same level of commitment to the cause. There's disenchantment. There isn't the same cohesion and coherence. A lot of people feel resentful uh, about corruption within the Afghan government. Then you compare that with a Taliban soldier whose very goal in life is to die in battle, to enter paradise. And you can begin to see how it becomes a very difficult fight for these Afghan forces to accomplish. Clarissa Ward in Kabul, Kylie Atwood at the State Department, and Jeff Zeleny at the White House. Thank you. Up next, booster shots potentially coming soon, but only for a small number of Americans. We're going to explain who might get one. Plus, brand new census numbers, where the country is growing and why it matters for you. In our health lead, a push for vaccine booster shots as COVID-19 engulfs the U.S. Today, the CDC said more than 90 percent of counties have substantial or high levels of transmission. And here's a stunning comparison. What the country looked like one month ago on the left and what it looks like right now. The highly infectious Delta variant and low vaccination rates mostly to blame. Now, as CNN's Nick Walt reports, the FDA is planning to authorize a third dose for many Americans. The FDA expected very soon to greenlight an additional vaccine shot for the immunocompromised. That actually encompasses a relatively small proportion of the population, around 3% or so. So what about boosters? For the rest of us, we believe sooner or later you will need a booster for durability of protection. We are preparing for the eventuality of doing that. Meantime, in Franklin, Tennessee, you can leave freely, but we will find you and we will never be allowed in public again. 
After a school board vote for a mask mandate, members, doctors, nurses harassed. The president saw this video. You know, our healthcare workers are heroes. To the mayors, school superintendents, educators, local leaders who are standing up to the governor's politicizing mask protection for our kids. Thank you. Thank you as well. Thank God that we have heroes like you. And I stand with you all. Thousands of kids, largely in the South, already sent home back to virtual school. Why? Exposure and or high case counts where they live. Masking is, I think a lot of us would say, something pretty small that we can do in order to prevent all these negative consequences. Nearly 99% of the U.S. population lives in counties where people should be wearing masks indoors, according to new CDC guidance. Meantime, more than 75,000 people are now in the hospital fighting the virus. Look at that line climb over the past month. That's a problem. Florida and Texas alone have accounted for nearly 40% of new hospitalizations across the country. Triage tent just went up again outside LBJ Hospital in Houston, Texas. Things are terrible. Um, my hospitals are full. I'm filling fast in Mississippi. If we continue that trajectory within the next five to seven to ten days, I think we're, we're going to see failure of the hospital system in Mississippi. Anger in Alabama that the virus is surging. Until we get enough people vaccinated, we're just going to continue to see this revamp its ugly face. Now, San Francisco just became the first major city in this country to enact an ordinance like this. Pretty soon, gyms, bars, restaurants, indoor gyms, bars, restaurants, theaters are going to have to ask for proof of full vaccination from employees and customers before they are allowed inside. Down here in Los Angeles, the city attorney is right now preparing something similar. Pamela. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. And joining me now to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Sanjay Gupta. Today, good to see you, Sanjay. Today, the CDC director said the booster dose would go to immunocompromised people. Only 3% of Americans... um, which would receive this from the in the immunocompromised community. But what is the signal to the rest of us? Does that mean that it will happen for the rest of us soon? Well, Pamela, I think the most honest answer is I don't know. Uh, but I don't think that it, this necessarily is like a linear thing, that it's this population, then it's for sure going to lead to everyone needing a booster. The issue with people who have, are immunocompromised is that their immune systems could not generate the same antibody response. That, that was the concern. Let me show you this one study. Uh, this came out of the New England Journal of Medicine. This is specifically looking at organ transplant recipients and finding out what happened if they got the regular two shots. That's the bar graph on the far left. They got, you know, neutralizing antibody effect. But then when they got that third shot, you can see how much more protection they got. So that was because their immune system in the first place did not generate enough antibodies. They needed that third shot. For the rest of us, the news, Pamela, every time we look at it, is that the vaccines remain very effective. Studies coming out today talking about Moderna still effective at six months, even against the Delta variant. The, the, the trigger will be, most likely, not so much seeing waning antibodies. It will be people who were healthy, got vaccinated, and still got you know, severely ill. And we're not seeing that yet, thankfully. These vaccines still remain very effective.
Right. And, and just to dig a little bit deeper on what you were just noting there, um, there's this new preprint study showing the Delta variant has significantly impacted vaccine efficacy. So I want to just put these numbers into perspective a little bit more, Sanjay. Between January and July, researchers found two doses of Moderna's vaccine were 86% effective in preventing infections, and two doses of Pfizer's vaccine were 76% effective. But by the end of July, after the Delta variant took hold, the efficacy for Moderna dropped to 76% and Pfizer to 42%. So for those watching this right now who may have had the Pfizer vaccine, what should they be thinking when they see those numbers? I'd be very careful interpreting uh, these, these types of numbers. It's, it's a really early study. It hasn't even been peer-reviewed. But let's say that even those numbers are accurate, which we're not sure about, if, if they hold up in larger populations. The real question is, does the, does the vaccine protect you from getting severely ill? That was what the uh, initial outcome trials were looking at, and that's, you know, the most important thing. I think what we're seeing is that the Delta variant is far more transmissible, so there's people who test positive because they're dealing with a more transmissible virus, but they're not necessarily getting sick or they're not necessarily getting very sick, and that number has held, has held constant. So I think what we're seeing is more people are able to, to actually uh, test positive, carry the virus in their nose, their mouth, even if they've been vaccinated but the second part of that equation, that that then translates them getting severely ill, we're still thankfully not seeing that. And that's a really important point because you have this new piece out today about people who are vaccinated but end up testing positive with COVID. And in that piece, you argue we should get away from calling them breakthrough cases. Why is that? Well, I, you know, breakthrough sort of gives this, this sort of impression, uh, you know, that incorrectly the, the, the virus is breaking through the protective armor of the vaccine and that the vaccine is somehow failing. What, if, if you think about the vaccine, and this is something that I think is really important, I've learned more about just over this past year and a half, the vaccine itself, primarily these vaccines are working at the level of the lung, okay? So the virus is in your nose and your mouth, you may test positive, but you're probably not that ill, probably have few symptoms. It is when the virus goes into the lung that people start to get severely ill. These vaccines work at that level. So it is quite reasonable people would still have the virus in their upper airway, test positive, be considered a breakthrough infection, but again, not not get severely ill because the vaccine's doing exactly what it should be doing. So in some ways, a breakthrough infection is an indication to the the vaccine makers that the vaccine is working. So I I think the term is just one of these terms that Mm -hmm. people misinterpret. Uh, Scientists often say post-vaccine infection, Whatever the term, don't interpret that as a, as a vaccine failure. And that's important. I mean, language matters when you're dealing with so many people yeah. in this country who are still unvaccinated, who may want to look at, point to that and say, well, see, but what you're saying is it really right. can save your life because it's not making it down to the lungs. The vaccine is working, and that is the point of all of it. But I do want to ask you big picture here, given how many people are still unvaccinated and people who just say they will not get vaccinated no matter what, is it inevitable that the next strain is going to be just as bad or not worse than the Delta? Well, there, there will be more mutations for sure. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a game of chance and I am not trying to say that to be glib, but the more the virus spreads, the more mutations occur. Many of those mutations may be harmless or or not making the virus worse, but every now and then there will be a mutation that does make the virus more transmissible. Um, 
So the, the real issue is not, it, it, you know, obviously we want to get people vaccinated. That protects them and ultimately will lower, uh, you know, viral spread. But the key is to just reduce the number of times the virus spreads from one person to another. That's the key, because each time that happens, more mutations can occur. I think that's why we talk about vaccines and masks at the same time. You want to vaccinate to protect people, ultimately have this long-term protection against viral spread. But masks now can actually bring the viral spread down, reduce the chance of mutations, and, and, and as a result, reduce the chance of some new problematic variant emerging. Right. I think that's the key. Um, it's the difference between, you know, a pour down if it's raining outside versus, you know, just kind of yes. sprinkling. Right. I mean, it really brings it that's down right. the transmission, which is part of this whole calculation. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. And up next, brand new details shedding light on how America has changed and what it might mean for you. In the politics lead, one of the most consequential sets of numbers to be released in the last decade, results of the 2020 census. Bottom line, America has changed a lot. These results help determine how billions of dollars in federal funding are spent, where to build roads, how much to give public schools, how many elected leaders represent you in Congress. So let's get you right to CNN's Tom Foreman for the breakdown. Tom, start with the overall numbers. How much has the U.S. population changed? Well, it's bigger, as you would guess. Look at that. 331.4 million people in the U.S. on this latest census. That is, of course, growth. But look at it compared to the past year. One of the things the census folks note, it is the slowest growth we've had in this country since way back in the 1920s and 1930s. So this is much slower than we would normally expect, Pam. What about population by race? Are there any notable changes there released today? There absolutely are. Look, white people, non-Hispanic white people, remain the majority almost everywhere, and certainly the plurality in places where they're not the majority generally. But look at the movement here by the Hispanic or Latino population. That's the sort of the pink line here. A lot of movement there, so much so that they are now the biggest group in California, and New Mexico coming strong in other places too, like Texas. And here's a really big one that they made a big point of. Look at the number of people in this country who say they are some other race, mixed ethnicity, that sort of thing. For almost 50 million people here, that's way up. Now, some of this is because the Census Bureau allowed people to better designate what they see themselves as. So some of this is actual change in society, and some of this is people just being able to express who they are. But that is a big number, and that really changes the math for a lot of people out there trying to figure out the politics of all of this. And all this impacts the numbers in Congress. Tom, what do we know? Yeah, well, we know for one thing that the pandemic made all of this counting very problematic and confused a lot of people. But the census people say they are confident that they got a good count. And right now the race is on. Operatives from the Democrats and the Republicans and anybody else who wants to play but they're out there looking at all these districts and saying, where do we gain people? Where do we lose people? Because this is what you base congressional representation on. We know already that Texas, for example, is going to pick up some seats. We also know that Florida is going to pick up some seats. These are states that have been a big deal in this election, and there's been a big fight over how the vote goes there. And we also know some other places have lost seats. So... What you're going to see is this mad dash now by the parties to say, how can we draw these district lines to multiply the effect of our voters and diminish the effect of the other side? That'll all happen in back rooms, 
But that's where these numbers are really, really going to count. Pam. All right. Tom Foreman, thanks for helping us understand all of this. Well, a rather late financial disclosure raising some eyebrows about an investment made by one U.S. senator's wife. We'll discuss up next. Stopping our politics lead new details about one of the bit players and Trump's big lie. The Trump White House, of course, had plenty of well-known deputies willing to peddle his baseless claims of election fraud. But CNN and Sarah Murray reports on one Republican congressman who worked furiously behind the scenes to stop the will of American voters. A little-known Pennsylvania congressman who publicly parroted claims of election fraud We want the, ba- the ballots and the votes that are counted to be legal was privately helping former President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Republican Congressman Scott Perry has acknowledged he connected Trump with Jeffrey Clark, an environmental law chief at the Justice Department. Clark backchanneled with the White House to help push baseless fraud conspiracies and even attempted a leadership coup at the Justice Department, according to documents and testimony from former Justice Department officials. Perry had a friendly relationship with Trump. A wonderful man who represents this area, Scott Perry. It's unclear how he knew Clark, but the three men were united in their embrace of election conspiracies. Gentlemen, I don't understand if there's criminal activity present, fraud, that's criminal activity. Why we don't look at that? In a batch of emails released by the House Oversight Committee, Perry passes along documents to the Justice Department that allege there were more votes counted than voters who voted in Pennsylvania, a claim that's been debunked. That same day, Trump mentions Perry's name in a call with Justice Department officials. Later in the call, Trump instructs justice officials to just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. In Washington, Perry, a member of the House Freedom Caucus, has courted controversy by objecting to the certification of Pennsylvania's election result in the hours following the insurrection. Sadly, but resolutely, I object to the electoral votes of my beloved Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And voting against awarding the Congressional Gold Medal to officers who defended the Capitol on January 6th. Back in Perry's south-central Pennsylvania district, many of his allies are unfazed by his role in Trump's quest to overturn the election. One man introduces another man to a third man. Where is that illegal or improper or inappropriate? At home, Perry's known for his humble roots, getting a start at a local farm at age 13, rising to the rank of Brigadier General in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard, and winning five terms in Congress. Here, Perry's election skepticism and unwavering support for Trump may help him win elections. There's a lot of suspicion that... uh, Uh, things uh, in the election didn't go right because there was some shenanigans going on. Not all of Perry's supporters agree, like Gary Eichelberger, who oversaw Cumberland County's elections. We have to appeal to a a large number of swing voters if we want to win in Pennsylvania and if we want to win any nationwide elections. So doubling down on the divisiveness is a potential death sentence for the Republican Party. We tried to ask Perry about those concerns, but he was nowhere to be found this week when we visited all three of his district offices. Now, we also reached out to Perry's staff to see if he wanted to comment at all for this piece. We didn't get any response. And as you might expect, his actions have really enraged Democrats. They already called on him to resign earlier this year. Pam, he responded in a one-word press release that just said no. All right. Well, we know where he stands. Uh, Sarah Murray, thank you so much for that. Let's discuss. Uh, Sabrina, I'm going to kick it off with you on the heels of that report from Sarah Murray. I mean, the more we learn about all the behind the scenes shenanigans with DOJ officials and, and congressmen, the more this smacks of a coup attempt. 
What do you make of the lawmaker's unwillingness to really answer for his actions? Well, it really just shows, to your point, how many people were involved in this effort to try and subvert the will of the American people. And Congressman Scott Perry is one of the Trump loyalists who really played a prominent role, as Sarah Murray pointed out, in trying to promote uh, the big lie, even you know, encouraging Stop the Steal events. Of course, his home state of Pennsylvania, one of the key Rust Belt states uh, that swung from former President Trump into President Biden's column. And he also introduced, as Sarah Mary said, uh, the former president to Jeffrey Clark, a relatively obscure Justice Department official who really became key to trying to in trying to push uh, the president's efforts to overturn the election. And so it just reinforces how many people the president was willing to turn to uh, in his effort to uh, overturn the election, not just cabinet officials who, of course, rebuked him, but members of Congress as well as obscure officials within the Justice Department. The question now is whether these committees who are investigating these matters are going to bring forward any consequences for lawmakers like Scott, per- Scott Perry were involved. Yeah, I mean, and it's remarkable to see, as Sarah laid out, how much this whole big lie, election lie, is actually helping Republicans. Right, and it's just interesting to me that there are so many Republicans who not only perpetuated the so-called big lie, but then they had a role in, like, the reaction to it. So it's like they're pushing it, but then they're also, you know, saying, therefore, we should not certify Joe Biden's electoral college win. Or at the state level, they're saying, therefore, we should change our laws because we want to make elections more secure. And again, to your point, it does speak to their base. And a lot of far-right MAGA Republicans are celebrating what these lawmakers are doing, but it's making it harder for them in swing states to win because voters in the middle and Democrats are not pleased. And, and one of the um, people who has also been pushing the big election lie or raising suspicions has been Senator Rand Paul, who, by the way, uh, made a very late financial disclosure this week that has raised eyebrows, that his wife purchased stock in February 2020 in the company that makes the antiviral drug remdesivir. How troubling, if you put this in perspective, Paul, is this late disclosure? You know, it's, it's the least bad story Rand Paul's had this week. Because <laughs> it wasn't a huge investment. It was his wife. It was 165 days late, which is a little troubling, but it came out. And voters in Kentucky can decide for themselves if that's problematic. I think what's far worse is the comments he made on YouTube telling people that masks don't work. You know, nobody's going to die because his wife made investments. She says she didn't even make money off it. So honestly, I'm ready to give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm an ardent Democrat. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on the investment. It's to go forward and tell people that masks don't work when we know they do. Now, he is whining and and moaning about that because YouTube for a whole week suspended him from their account. A whole week. Ooh, if he does it again, maybe he'll miss the Jonas Brothers concert and be grounded for two weeks. Uh, But people can die because of that. And in his Commonwealth of Kentucky, where you grew Mm -hmm. up, a half a million people have been infected. 7,394 have died. He has an obligation to tell the truth, yes, in his stock transactions, but also about public health. And I think that's much more outrageous, frankly, yeah. and a lot more people can be hurt by that. I mean, it's a big deal, and it's a big deal he was suspended, as you say. That's a slap yeah, on it's the a, wrist, It's though. a slap on the wrist, but it is still a big deal. And, Kristen, I want to bring you in on something that really falls into your expertise, and that would be the census data. This new data that came out shows that almost all of the nation's growth since 2010 happened in cities which have been Democratic strongholds, not rural areas. What does all of this tell us? Well, it's interesting. You have, versus expectations, you have seen this data giving some good news to Democrats when there was an expectation that 
this would be a lot of good news for Republicans. Early estimates had, you know, Texas, Florida, they are picking up those congressional seats. But then you look at where the growth is happening in some of these places. And if it is the cities, that may make it more challenging for Republican legislators or, or commissions appointed by Republicans in some of these states to carve up districts that are Republican safe. Now, there's a lot of talk over the last decade and a half about, well, our demographics destiny. You know, we saw in this census really huge growth in terms of the non-white population in the U.S. You have states like Florida and Georgia that are on the brink of being majority-minority states, um, which has huge political implications. But just because, say, the Latino population in Florida is growing does not necessarily mean it's becoming a bluer state. Mm -hmm. You can look, for instance, a county like Osceola County, right where I grew up, You've had huge population growth there. It's a large Latino community. And yet it's also a county that swung a little bit red this last time around. So demographics aren't destiny, but there's still a lot of good news in this for Democrats as they look toward redistricting. So should Republicans be worried at all from this? Or Well, I, I think Republicans, this just underscores their need to make sure they have a message that appeals beyond mm. sort of white or evangelical rural voters. Um, America is changing. Their message is going to have to reach people that don't necessarily look like the Republican coalition of 10 or 20 years ago may have looked. Yeah, and they also have to learn to appeal to people in metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. The census today says that metropolitan America grew by 9%. All 10 of the top 10 cities added population. Rural America lost population. 2.8% of the population of rural America that was there 10 years ago is gone now. They're voting with their feet. And a big part of Republican talking points has been that cities are bad and cities are hell holes, I think is what our president called them, our former president. Uh, I think that's a terrible messaging. Uh, I live in rural America. I listen to country music. How many country songs are out there that say cities suck and city people are evil? You know, one of my sons likes hip hop. He says, you know, there's not a single hip hop song that says country people are awful. I trust him. I don't listen to it, but I gather he's right. So Republicans got to learn how to appeal to people in metropolitan America because that's a majority of America. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all so much. I wish we had more time. Appreciate it. Coming up, a stunning and sad story about a dad who confessed to murdering his own kids. This is just an awful story. What he told investigators up next. In our national lead, a California father confessed to stabbing his two young children to death, leaving them in a ditch in Mexico, telling investigators he did it for several reasons, including serpent DNA and the QAnon conspiracy theory. CNN's Josh Campbell has more, and we must warn you, the details of this story are disturbing. Two small children stabbed in the heart with a spearfishing gun their own father allegedly leaving their bodies in a ditch in Mexico. Mexican authorities describing difficult details. Under the bushes, they found the lifeless bodies of two children, one female, one male. Authorities say 40-year-old surf instructor Matthew Taylor Coleman from Santa Barbara, California, confessed to murdering his two-year-old son and 10-month-old daughter this week in Mexico telling the FBI he was driven to the killings after being enlightened by QAnon and Illuminati conspiracy theories. Police and federal agents were called in after the children were reported missing by their mother. Authorities tracking Coleman's cell phone to Mexico. Surveillance video images released by authorities show Coleman checking into a hotel with his children August 7th. Just before 3 a.m. on August 9th, he packs them up and leaves a hotel, returning hours later alone. He was stopped by border officials while returning to the United States. U.S. Customs and Border Protection officers finding what appeared to be blood on the vehicle's registration paperwork, but no children. 
The FBI soon learned from Mexican authorities that the bodies of two children were found overnight, along with the murder weapon, bloody clothes, and a baby's blanket. According to the criminal complaint, Coleman allegedly told authorities he was receiving visions and signs revealing that his wife possessed serpent DNA and had passed it on to his children. Coleman also allegedly telling the FBI he was saving the world from monsters. He was arrested and charged with the foreign murder of U.S. nationals. Just a horrific, tragic loss. Coleman's neighbors back in Santa Barbara, stunned. Uh, just shocked, frankly. Um, immensely tragic in having known uh, the, two, the two kids and, and the family. Um, it's, it's just awful. Now, Pamela, CNN has reached out to the public defender representing Coleman. We have not yet received a response. This case, obviously, very tragic. We obviously don't know if there are mental health issues at play here. Obviously, not every adherent to QAnon is going to act with violence. But experts and law enforcement officials tell us that some of them have. And this is a movement that certainly remains concerned, concerning both for officials here in America and in parts of the world. And it just it just shows you that there is danger in believing this. I mean, this is one of the worst stories I've heard in a while. Josh Campbell, thank you. Thanks. Well, it may be August, but we already know something that you're going to be paying more for during the holidays. But it may be a good thing. Christmas is coming early this year, at least for the post office. The Postal Service is requesting a temporary price increase starting October to ensure your holiday packages arrive on time. The upcharge would range from 20 cents to $5. The higher rates still need to be approved. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.